Welcome back to the continuation of the second series in our Facilities Management Coffee Talks. Our listeners continue to focus on best practices, and today is looking at managing invoices and the best practices associated with those, as well as best practices for determining break-fix or asset replacement type decisions. Our returning guest is Bruce Paulson, the head of the Accruent Verisa Professional Services Group. He's a 16-year veteran in the facilities management space and has worked with dozens of clients. Good morning, Bruce. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Trey. Glad to be here. So we, we truly enjoyed our last conversation and wanted to invite you back to really dig in on two different subjects. The first of which is best practices for managing invoices. Uh, a lot of our listeners are operators, they're facilities managers, and they're working with a list of hundreds, if not thousands, of service providers. Uh, can you talk a little bit on how you can work with a computerized maintenance management system to better manage invoices with those service providers? You bet, uh, Trey. So this is this is a big issue, and it's a big pain point for a lot of our customers. It's a complex issue. Like you said, they're dealing with hundreds and, and thousands of different service providers and, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, invoices that they've got to manage with lots of different uh, challenges to each. So, you know, what what we think a CMMS should be able to do is to, to help manage that, automate that, to give you uh, a lot of control and power, but also flexibility as needed when working with that. Because we, we know there's all kinds of different organizations and, and philosophies in facilities maintenance. And so we we strive to have a system that, gives you enough control that you need, but enough flexibility that you can deal with uh, those those one-offs as, as needed. So one of those ways that we manage that invoicing process is that we can be very strict and, and auto-calculate labor based on time clocked in and, and out of a work order on site um, and, and not allow, if, if needed, not allow extra editing of that, just those are are the uh, the labor charges that we're going to apply based on that that time. Same with uh, any trip or travel charges; those can be auto applied to that work order based on the location and that service provider. Um, now that's perfect. And, yep, that's great. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Uh, that's right. Uh, the uh, other things that we can do is as work orders or, or those invoices on the work orders are being uh, created and then submitted for review, those can be evaluated based on automatic criteria and then flagged when maybe non-standard or, or certain rules are not met. And so that gives those invoice reviewers a, you know, just an additional clue to go look into that further. Likewise, we can also automatically approve invoices that maybe are below a certain cost threshold and have certain criteria like they met all the other rules um, that were defined for that type of work. So I like this concept, Bruce, of rules surrounding invoices. Uh, we know, right or wrong, we know that some of our service providers will round up their time on site. 
how are you using this system to make sure you get an accurate view of how much time they spend on a repair versus when they may just round up or fudge just a little bit? Yeah, great question. That is a, another very uh, felt pain that we've heard from our customers. And one of the ways that we track that is we track time on site using the when a technician is doing service on site when they start the work so they clock in using our application we track the the geolocation the gps coordinates of, of that technician when they started that work and make sure that that is within what we call the geofence of that location of that site and same when they um, update that work order and then finally when they complete the work we're tracking that time and so then we're tracking that really down to the minute, down to the second even, and we're calculating that based off a of labor rate. So if a customer is using that, then there's no reason for the service provider to round up. However, if the service provider uses and the customer allows them to use what we call our labor adjustments functionality, which they can then apply sometimes credits, sometimes you know, additional labor hours and then costs to a work order, um, we flag that during the invoice process. So you can choose not to allow that those labor adjustments, and then you wouldn't ever even have this issue of rounding up. But if you allow it for some exceptional circumstances, um, it will be flagged so that those invoice reviewers uh, can see that labor adjustments were applied and make sure that no rounding up has uh, taken place. You know, that's great. Um, each time we talk to you, there is this overarching concept of the CMMS, the Computerized Maintenance Management System, becoming kind of a system of record. I know that our listeners are constantly worried about their service providers adopting this new process and ensuring that they invoice in a timely manner, Bruce, is a big deal. How can you ensure, how do you monitor across these hundreds or even thousands of service providers that they are invoicing you in a timely manner and not constantly floating uh, these costs on the books? It's a great question. One, one thing just to ensure the uh, compliance, um, a great a best practice used by many of our customers is to put into their master services agreement with those service providers the commitment to using the CMMS system to, you know, having their technicians clock in and clock out on their work orders on site. But another, and, and we manage the performance of that. We manage, you know, that they're accepting uh, accepting the, the dispatch of that work on time, that they're showing up and starting that work um, within the required time frame and completing that. Another way that uh, you manage performance or another performance metric that our customers manage is the timeliness to invoice. And again, that can be put into the MSA that the service providers must invoice within a certain time frame um, after the work has been completed so that the customers don't have to accrue and, and open, you know, keep extra large lines of credit open for outstanding invoices that should have been invoiced much earlier. So how do we track that? One way we have a lot of reporting and dashboards that can look and, and highlight those things. They can even um, send out alerts 
whether to the customer or to the service providers, letting them know that their invoices uh, are are overdue or coming close to overdue and they need to get those submitted. And then finally, we have an automated solution that will auto-close outstanding work orders um, so that you can't invoice them after a certain period. Um, so that is really a, an effective way that a lot of our customers have um, closed out these really old outstanding invoices and and then also really encouraged and enforced their service providers to invoice in a timely manner. So that's interesting because it becomes, like you said, an enforcement issue and you're now looking to roll it into service level agreements. Do you Is this an iterative process, Bruce, or do you enforce it out of the gates when you launch the system and onboard these service providers? Well, it's both. We, we recommend that as if a, a new customer is coming on board on our uh, CMMS system that they will set those standards and boundaries up front um, right away so that everyone knows, hey, you you need to invoice within 90 days or whatever that time frame is um, of our, you know, of the work being completed. Now, we've also seen a lot of success with our customers doing this iteratively, especially as they're rolling it out maybe after the, the go live of the CMMS. And so we've seen them, you know, work down, maybe they initially say it's going to be 180 days is the cutoff before we auto-close these work orders, and then you can't invoice without, without uh, you know, an, uh, probably an uncomfortable phone call to say, you know, please reopen that work order so I can invoice because I couldn't do my job in a timely manner. Um, and then we've seen them walk that down from, say, 180, and then in a few months down to 150, and then down to, you know, 120, maybe 90, maybe eventually 60, depending on what each customer's uh, threshold was going to be. I think one of the sexiest things you said there, Bruce, was get paid in a more timely manner and take some of those invoices and those costs off the books. So that will be exciting for our listeners. And uh, it's thanks. a win-win, right? It's a win-win <laughs> for the vendors. Hey, you know, they're usually not running charities. They want to get paid. So this helps them stay on track and, and get paid for the work that they've done as well. So it's good for both. Thank Back. you, Bruce. That's fantastic. All right. Next, let's jump to the second area of focus that we had from our listeners. Bruce, we have our listeners submit questions, uh, submit emails, and, and honestly recommend uh, some of the subjects they'd like to talk about. Uh, the other one is kind of a more advanced area of focus in the area of work order automation. Uh, they are now asking us, our listeners are now asking us, uh, how to make, to make better break-fix decisions and how to make more strategic asset replacement decisions. So in your experience, you've worked with a lot of clients from different industry verticals. How do you know the expected life of an asset and what that should be so that you can make an informed decision? Well, we, you know, number one, that means that you have gathered your your asset data, and you have a good catalog of your assets or equipment at your sites. Um, once you have that, you know, there's critical information that you want to have on about each of those assets, things like, you know, when was it uh, put into service, 
what is the warranty details about that asset? You know, when did it go, when does it go off a warranty? Or when did it if it's older than that? Um, of course, make and model is critical information to have in, in that regard. And then, you know, back to your question, how do you determine what the life cycle of that asset should be? Well, there's, there's a lot of different ways to go about that. You can look at, um, you know, what does the manufacturer say about the, you know, expected life of that particular make and model? You can look at your own history um, in your system if you have enough of a history to see when, you know, what is the average length uh, of service of assets of a particular make and model. And then we can apply that into the application and that calculates based off that in-service date, you know, multiplied by the expected or calculated by the expected life of that asset and we know an expected end of life of that asset. And then based on that, we can do a lot of reporting um, to, to do planning around uh, potential replacement uh, of those assets as they age. So that is really interesting. There's a lot there, Bruce. Do you do workshops or anything to enable clients and coach them since you've done this before? We do. We will, uh, you know, we'll, we'll sit down and do um, consulting and, and planning workshops with customers to help them figure out the right strategy because, it, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all. There might be even, even a particular, you know, make and model of equipment in some environments it might run, you know, 50% longer than in other based on the, the type of use and, and, you know, the environment that it runs in. So we, uh, yeah, it, it, we will work with our customers and, and sit down and consult with them on different strategies that they can employ. You know, Bruce, I, I liked your your discussion on the dependency of making sure you have insights into those assets, whether those are asset tags or a cataloging number on those assets. Once those are there, uh, what is your process for defining asset thresholds for break-fix decisions specifically? So we work with our, our customers to understand what they really are looking for. Now, we'll come in with some best practices, but we look at a percentage generally of a purchase price it is one of the one of the best practices that, that we bring and, and we uh, recommend for our customers when they're determining a maintenance threshold. And a maintenance threshold is basically the maintenance expenditure on a, an asset, a piece of equipment over its life before you choose to replace that asset. Generally, it's going to be less than 100% of the replacement cost of that asset. Um, a lot of times it's 75, 80%. Once you hit that threshold, then we, uh, we look at replacing that asset. Now that asset might, you know, it, it might be on a case by case basis that we, we run an asset because it's been very effective and continual, continues to be pretty efficient that we won't replace it till it's after that, over that threshold significantly, but at least it gives us a baseline to start looking at those things and, and making some decisions. So that's interesting. How do you manage that from a workflow process and ensure that you're not overspending on replacing that asset? 
Well, one, there's probably a couple ways um, that are mainly used. One is we can put it automatically into the workflow. So when a, um, a work order is opened on that asset, um, we, we can set a, a dispatch exception rule to say if a work order is over a certain percentage of its maintenance threshold, maybe it's, again, if that threshold is 75%, we might say, you know, don't do anything until we hit that 75%, then don't dispatch this work order until someone else triages it and looks at it because we might want to replace it instead of continuing to spend money on that old asset. Um, or it could be a percentage or less than that 75% that you might want to start having that conversation. Um, and we also then have dashboards and reports that you can do a little bit more proactively than just, you know, in the real time that we can say, hey, what what assets are above or getting close to uh, their maintenance threshold? We want to start doing some planning, uh, capital planning to replace those assets. So that that's also very interesting because when you think of facilities management, that's more about repair uh, type spend. On the other hand, yeah. asset replacement is more capital planning. How do you make sure that both teams are on the same page and can agree to which budget these expenses go into? Well, really, I think that's based on the reporting that we offer. So we have capital planning reporting options that look at both the the expected end of life of an asset as well as the maintenance threshold. So we can take all the assets that, again, in a certain time frame, look like they're potentially going to need to be replaced, either based on that expected end of life or they're getting close or they're already over their maintenance threshold. So with that data, then the uh, the FM and the, the capital uh, teams can really work together to decide what the budgets are going to look like and who, where that where those dollars are going to come from, whose budget. So that's helpful because this is again kind of an advanced approach to how you're managing some of your expenditures. So understanding the the requirements involved those additional stakeholders is a big deal. Uh, Bruce, let me end on a note which kind of brings your wisdom to the table. What are some of the challenges and pitfalls around asset management, asset replacement that you would recommend to our listeners, and what should they avoid? Well, uh, when you say wisdom, I'm looking over my shoulder to see if someone else is in the room here. <laughs> but, um, you know, from the experience of our, our wise customers, um, what, what I'll say is that, you know, a key is really keeping your asset data up to date. Uh, of course, without, without the data being complete and accurate, um, it's hard to make, you know, wise and accurate um, database decisions. So that, that is really important. You know, we really stress that with our customers, that they have a defined process uh, of really strong communication and ownership of who's going to take care of making sure that the asset data in the system is correct and that all the assets in the, the site um, have 
asset tags on them so they're clearly identifiable, and then that data, of course, gets loaded in the system. And that also means when assets get transferred from site to site that those transfers um, are logged and, and that data is update, updated and accurate um, in the system. So that, that to me, is, is you know, one of the, the pitfalls. You know, as soon as that asset um, data is loaded in the system, you've got to be diligent to make sure that it stays up to date. You know, there's a lot of moving parts to this type of program as I'm listening to you. So thank you very much, Bruce, for all your coaching on best practices here. Uh, clearly, it sounds like there needs to be a lot of communication and a plan to uh, capture all that information before you get started. Uh, our listeners, and certainly I, I myself, Bruce, have enjoyed having you on the call and your expertise. Thanks for making time. You're welcome. Thanks, Trey. Enjoyed it. And to our listeners, we're going to continue to take your input. Please submit emails or uh, reach out to us. We'll invite industry experts to the call and keep our focus on best practices for facilities management and work order automation. Thanks to everyone for your time. That was great. The one thing I need is we didn't have a transition, really, between the first session and the second. So I just need Trey to do a sign-off for the first one, and then I'll have Ashley edit it back into the clip. Got it. I'll do that. And, Allie, there was one, I can't remember if it was in the first or second when I interrupted Bruce. Maybe you can just cut me out on that one. Yeah, and I'll go through it because I'm going to listen to both of these back and give Ashley editing notes so it's easier okay. for her to do post. All right. Let me uh, do the intro for you. The exit out of the first one. So it's best practices for managing invoices. Got it. So, Bruce, thanks for all the insights into managing invoices. I mean, like we've said, uh, facilities managers, our operators that are listeners on this call, uh, have big challenges to do more with less, and we truly appreciate your insight on best practices for managing the invoicing process and working with large groups of suppliers. Yeah. To, to our listeners, thanks again for tuning in. We look forward to your additional feedback and any requests you have on subjects you would like us to cover with industry experts on these podcasts. Thank you again for your time, and we look forward to you joining in the future.